Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to Lost in Science for another week. My name is Claire and this week on the show I'm actually going to be talking a little bit about a mammal that you might know, the naked mole rat, and some new research that has come out about the naked mole rat and how it can survive for a really long period of time in 0% oxygen. Have you have either of you heard about this? No, 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 no. Yeah, well, uh, no other mammal can do this, and it's giving some really interesting insights into how we can maybe help people who have cardiac arrests and that sort of thing, um, who you know aren't able to get oxygen into their brains over you know a short period of time. How we can sort of help them. I mean, and also the naked mole rats are very cool and interesting animal in its own right. They can so do a lot of things that no other animals can do. They really can. Yeah. They really can. So yeah. um, I'm going to be talking a little bit about that. Mm. How about you, Stu? Well, I'm going to be talking about probably, well, it's, it's a recurring theme in science that often people do studies and they find things where they draw connections between things which may not actually be all that important. Uh, where they find a correlation that doesn't necessarily represent a causal relationship. And that's what I'm going to be talking about today, uh, to do with soft drinks and dementia and stroke risk. I feel like this is such a common theme on our show. Maybe we should have like a causation correlation superhero or something like that. I don't know. Causation man. Yeah, causation man. (laughs) Yeah, maybe you could like don the cape of causation man and go on a tirade about it. Just because you see Clark Kent and Superman like, you know, they they, they kind of turn up at the same time doesn't mean they're the same person. (laughs) Something like that. Yeah, yeah. How about you, Chris? Well, speaking of sensationalised research, uh, I don't know if you've seen any reports about negative mass. I have seen some reports about negative mass yeah, and lots si- of questions from people saying, what does that even mean? Yeah, some, so some scientists made something that they said had negative mass. It's caused a bit of sensation. Yeah, uh, and a lot of questions. They made it? Yeah. Wow. It's, um, it's complicated, I guess, is the answer, Stu. Mm-hmm. Did they just yeah. put a minus sign in front of uh, some mass? If it only were that simple, Claire. If only it were that simple. (laughs) Well, I can't wait to hear about it. On with the show. So the naked mole rat has got to be one of my favourite animals. Not for appearance, I'm certain. (laughs) Hey, now I think surely, surely naked mole rats are attractive to other naked mole rats, though. <laughs> no, they don't do a lot of that kind question, of thing, isn't it? So right. what are they, what, can you describe okay, yeah, what they look, look like? Okay, to us, Claire? Yeah, yeah. For those who aren't quite familiar with this very special animal, let me paint a visual. So imagine a male human reproductive appendage uh, with teeth. Four legs, tiny eyes. Big teeth. Big teeth. Big teeth. Tiny little eyes that lives underground uh, with hundreds of other (laughs) naked compatriots. (laughs) Wrinkly. (laughs) Yeah. You have yourself a pretty clear picture of what this animal really looks like. (laughs) 
And what they lack in physical beauty, they surely make up in fascinating biology, which just got more interesting with new research that came out this week showing that they can survive for 18 minutes in a zero oxygen environment. Which is unheard of in the mammal world. Anyway. How did, w- how did they figure this out? Did they just yes. put them in a vacuum chamber and suck all the air out and then wait to see how long they survive? Well, I don't know if they sucked all the air out or they just increased the concentration of nitrogen maybe. Right. Um, but, yeah, I will get back to that. I don't know if they can survive in a vacuum. But, I mean, uh, you know, they can do pretty amazing they can things. Do anything else. So maybe mm. they can survive in a vacuum. I do want to talk and revel in the other amazing attributes of the naked yeah, mole so, rat first. So. Okay, so first, their social structure, something mm-hmm. I know that's, that you love about them, I Chris. I think this is amazing. So it is and, and was the first mammal to be discovered to have a eusocial structure, which is a social structure similar to ants, termites and some bees. So you've only got one female, which is a queen, and then you've got up from one to three males which reproduce with her, while the rest of the members of the colony function as workers. So they are, um, I guess, reproductively stagnated. Or Which is weird that the mammals be doing that, but also weird. Well, like what kind of work do they require? A mole rat? Yeah, well, um, they... They gather food, they maintain the nest, um, and then you've got like like you've got with ants, like those bigger ones that are mm, like you know soldiers. primed. The, yeah, yeah, primed for um, fights. Um, you've but got some a- larger workers who are who are more reactive in case of attack. But there's a giant queen rat at the center of it all. Yeah. Yeah, there is a queen rat. There's a queen naked mole rat at the centre of it all. Another amazing thing is they don't get cancer and they live until they are about thirty. They live till they're about 30. This is about 10 mm. times longer than your regular furred rat, your regular So that, they're, only, they're only rodent-sized They're only rodent-sized, yeah. They're pretty small, yeah. Yeah. So that, yeah. that's a pretty long time for a small animal like yeah, that. Yeah, very long, yeah. Very long, very long. The mammals are also highly resistant to tumours and live mm. 10 times longer, blah, blah, than your normal naked rat. They're completely um, impervious to fashion. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and they're very special rodents. They actually do not thermoregulate like most mammals. So oh. they're thermoconformers rather than thermoregulators like you and I. Um, so it means that their body temperature tracks to the surrounding temperature of oh, their okay. environment, keeping them at a constant temperature. Yeah, so they're weird. They're, weird. they're, they're really, weird. really weird. So I guess given all this um, that we know about the naked mole rat, it shouldn't come of much of a surprise researchers have discovered that they can survive long periods of time in oxygen deprivation. So just to put this in perspective, if humans find themselves in a low oxygen environment, that is if we go from our normal oxygen content of 20% to 10%, um, we find it quite difficult to breathe. These little guys are perfectly happy to exist in um, and just do their thing and go about their normal business in 5% oxygen. Um, for over 300 minutes. But then, yeah, like you say, the the researchers decided to turn it down even more to 0% and found that they can still survive. So they they go into a, a state of stasis, mm. but then they um, once the oxygen levels are increased again, they just like wake up and they're perfectly happy, <laughs> which is so weird. <laughs> Do we know how they do this? Yeah. It, so what they found was that 
in this low oxygen environment, it encourages this switch from the rodents to use glucose to feed their brain Mm -hmm. to using fructose. And now the benefit of using fructose instead of glucose is that it bypasses um, some steps in respiration that you need oxygen in. So they don't need oxygen for their respiration then? Well, their for, cells can operate. For, yeah, yeah. Their cells can operate. Um, so it's sort of like being in a cab stuck at a red light. Um, so you can't get where you're going until you get oxygen normally, um, which is going to turn the lights green. You can't start again. But if you start along this fructose pathway, if your cells start along this fructose pathway, then it's like your cab driver just taking a back road detour around the lights and getting then back into the traffic, putting your, yourself on the other side of the red light without relying on the oxygen. So it's pretty much finding this other pathway that the cells can go around and still have energy to be able to function. So the brain and the heart can still function even though there's no oxygen driving that um, driving glucose into the cells. So are you saying that if I eat enough fruit then I can breathe underwater? <laughs> I don't know about breathe underwater. Um, you might drown. Okay. But you, you could probably still drown. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you want to give up the other aspects of being a human and turn into a naked mole rat, I yeah. mean, it's a, it's a, if it's you an want appealing to turn lifestyle into a, choice. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, this isn't the first time using fructose in low oxygen environments has been noted. It's actually a mode of cell functioning that's associated with um, with plants more than it is animals. So this is how plants function a lot of the time. So let me just sum up our new favorite rodent for you. They have an insect-like social structure, they are cold-blooded like reptiles, and they have adapted to low-oxygen environments by functioning like a plant, which is pretty amazing. Truly a pastiche of an animal. Anyway, the researchers are quite excited about this from a human point of view because using this fructose pathway to provide energy to our cells without needing oxygen, it could be life-saving at certain times. So imagine a heart attack victim um, has a cardiac arrest, the heart stops pumping blood and oxygen's not getting to the brain and therefore um, cellular respiration and glucose um, isn't getting to, into the cells and you quickly get cell death. So if researchers can work out how to, live to, how to deliver fructose to the brain and take that pathway instead, then you could potentially be saving lives and preventing heart attacks. So I think the take-home message here is um, this is a very special mammal, has a lot to teach us, and don't judge a naked mole rat by its gross exterior. It's what's on the inside that counts. <laughs> So there's a science story doing the rounds on uh, mainstream news media outlets like The Guardian and News.com. And it's another example of what I think is generally pretty bad science reporting. Um, So the the story I'm talking about uh, was a study which was recently published in the journal Stroke by researchers from the Boston University School of Medicine Uh, looking into stroke and dementia and possible risk factors for stroke and dementia. Um, So the study examined the habits of 2,888 people over the age of 45 for stroke risks, and it also looked at 1,484 people over the age of 60 for risks related to dementia. Mm -hmm. The study itself concludes that... 
People who drink artificially sweetened soft drinks have a higher risk of both stroke and dementia, but there is no link between sugar-sweetened beverages and either of those conditions. Okay. Now... I can already sort of imagine what these headlines have been in the newspapers. Yeah, basically there's headlines saying, you know, artificial Artificial sweeteners sweeteners. cause stroke and dementia. And obviously this is not what the study has found. It does not mean that artificial sweetness cause these conditions, um, and obviously a lot of people will draw that conclusion because they're not really reading the study findings correctly. Yeah, and the study findings are probably behind a paywall as well. Well, that's another issue too. So look, the study itself, one of the big issues that I have with it is that it was based on a questionnaire of people's habits. So the data itself is relatively low quality. They weren't under controlled conditions, there was no third party observing what people were doing. It's basically what people can recall about their own behaviour. So the questionnaire was given at a certain time per week and then they would have to recall what they ate. Yeah, and and it was was over a period of years as well. So it was like actually looking at a a longitudinal study of, or, you know, longitudinal data from people. But it is basically what people can remember about what they've been um, eating and drinking So the other obvious issue that I could see is that there's no distinction in the study between different kinds of artificial sweeteners. Mm -hmm. So they're just lumping, you know, there's saccharin, there's aspartame, there's stevia, there's a whole bunch of things which are artificial sweeteners. They've just sort of gone, oh, well, it's all artificial sweeteners. So if there's actually an effect of some particular chemical compound on you know, your vascular system or your brain or whatever, it would be unique to that particular compound. It would not be transferable just on the basis of, well, they're all artificial sweeteners because that's not, well, that's just not how it works. That's not how chemistry works. Are there fundamental similarities between artificial sweeteners? Do you know? Like, or are they all quite chemically distinct? Yeah, they're all quite different to each other. Yeah, right. Well, that, that seems really weird. But look, there is definitely a correlation between the consumption of artificial sweeteners and dementia and stroke because they've shown mathematically that that it's there, but it's not a causal relationship between these two things. For example, it's highly likely that people who preferentially consume artificially sweetened beverages may have predispositions to those conditions already. For example, overweight people are known to have a higher risk of stroke and dementia and also more likely to drink low-calorie soft drinks and, you know, artificial sweeteners in things. So the idea that, yeah. you know, that th- these are two characteristics of a group of people is more than likely the explanation for the correlation, not any kind of direct relationship between the soft drinks and the the dementia and, and stroke. Um, and actually, when they corrected for health factors uh, like diabetes, type 2 diabetes and uh, obesity, the observed effect almost disappeared. Oh, really? So when, they, when it was corrected for those conditions that oh. are already known risk factors, then the effect diminishes so rapidly that there's not it- really much left. There are other problems with the study. Uh, the ethnic background of the participants was limited to people of Western European descent. Mm. So the findings might not be applicable to other ethnic groups, Mm. for example. Um, They didn't take into account the socioeconomic status of the participants. 
So there's no measure of their their uh, their income or any of those other factors which may influence health outcomes. So that means they they didn't control for any sort of economic factor, or any sort of education level, or anything like that. They well, they, yeah, they certainly didn't include it in the study, and they didn't put it into their analysis. So it's it's a kind of really low value study in a lot of ways. And the other thing that they didn't uh, look at was the absolute risk of these conditions as in how often a stroke and dementia are present in the general population as compared with this group. Because if they're comparing risk within a group, yep. that might seem a lot more significant than if you compare it to the general population. And in this particular case, it seemed like there was it was still pretty rare. You're talking, you know, like, um, you know, uh, I think 60 cases of stroke and 80... Uh, no, 60 cases of dementia and 80 cases of stroke in those cohorts... Um, which is really not a huge number. So mm-hmm. we're talking small numbers, which may be comparable to the general population anyway, um, but they haven't actually put that into the study. So it's, that yeah, the, yeah. We, we don't we don't know um, based on their um, publication what is actually going. So without the without those other important pieces of information, it, it, it's really difficult to report accurately on what they found, and it's very difficult to report it to the general public um, without raising alarms. And, you know, doctors have pointed out that, you know, there are health benefits to drinking l- less sugary drinks. Yeah, um, totally. So to, to, to kind of turn people off that idea is not a great public health message to be sending out. <laughs> you know, and it's, it's, it's really up to the people reporting on it to be responsible, and that means putting in the headline, you know, n- not a clickbaity panic stations headline about you know the, the the that if you drink soft you know if you drink artificial sweet and soft drinks you'll get dementia you've got to say well look there's a correlation but the correlation doesn't mean you know that that there's a connection between the two just that there's this is a characteristic of people who may have a higher risk of of developing dementia or or having a stroke but it may not actually be related to that activity at all it seems like a pretty long long headline though, Stu. Yeah, well that that is the difficulty when, <laughs> you know, people people do a lot of people read news headlines and don't read the rest of the article. So if you put something in the headline which is you know, which you later at the bottom of the article say, Oh well don't don't take it too seriously, well you've already blown it for, for most people who just would scan the headline and that will stick in their head and they'll walk around thinking that that's the um that was what the conclusion was. And, you know, I mean, this is, yeah, as I say, it's it's up to people reporting on these science stories. And also, it's probably up to researchers who are publishing the stories and publicising their stories to ensure that people get the right message from their, from their work, the right from the science. The right stories being told. Yeah. yeah. And, so, you know, it, it's equally the researcher's um, responsibility, as well as the reporter's. To, um, to, to report accurately and clearly and make sure that people understand the science. Otherwise, they will be left to draw the wrong conclusions, which may potentially be damaging uh, and not exactly what the researchers are trying to prevent. People go off making bad health decisions and end up poorer for it in the end. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you are listening to A Lost in Science. Right, so you may have seen some news reports recently about negative mass, and it has generated a lot of questions. I've been asked some of these questions. Uh, mostly people but wondering if it's some sort of magic, I suppose. Uh, it sounds a bit like magic. 
It kind of does, but it, it's like in in the universe, pretty much everything has an opposite, doesn't it? Well, not necessarily. I, look, I just want to say that um, that if it, it is, it is kind of magic, really. If by magic you mean a clever trick that makes it look like the impossible has happened. Which essentially what's happened here. So what has happened is um, the brief story is some scientists at Washington State University in America created a Bose-Einstein condensate of rubidium atoms where the effective mass was negative and they could tell because it showed properties like moving in the opposite direction to forces. That's a lot to unpack, so can, maybe yeah, we should can, get started can you on go, that. Can you go back a little bit? Well, no, let's go, let's go right to the beginning of what's actually we're talking Phew. about. Okay, okay, so yeah, negative mass. Yes. Do you ask, you know, things, things often have like a positive and negative thing. Mass, as we're familiar with, is normally positive. Yes. But what is mass, you may ask? Well, yeah, I mean, I guess that's the, that's the first question. If, if we're saying something's negative mass, what does mass mean in physics terms? Yeah. Well, okay, so you may have, uh, I'm going to have to take a little technical here, but if anywhere is safe to get a bit technical, lost in science, I feel, is that space. <laughs> um, you may remember Isaac Newton and his, his Newton's laws of motion. And in particular, there's, uh, there's an equation you may have seen, which is F equals MA, relating the force on something to the acceleration. The force equals mass times acceleration. And what this basically means is that the, if you apply a force to something, things with bigger mass will accelerate slower than things with small mass, as we're all quite familiar with. Yeah. Yeah. So you try and push a heavy object, it's going to move a lot slower than if you try to push a light object with the same level of force. So it's pretty straightforward. But if it's negative, these, these equations, they, you know, these, have, these numbers have directions. So if, it's, if the mass is negative, then what that would mean if you apply that to this equation is that the force and the acceleration would then be acting in opposite directions. So you would push on something and it would move towards you as opposed to away from you. That does sound like magic. That does sound a little bit like magic. This is one of the reasons why we haven't found it. Now you may ask... What? Um, you might wonder, <laughs> now what would happen, okay, if this is under gravity, for instance, would it fly up or down? Would it be like anti-gravity? And, well, <laughs> did you did you wondering that? Yeah, well, I mean, I didn't want to verbalise because I didn't want to look like an idiot. Okay. But, yeah. Well, I'm going to continue to get be technical. Um, Newton's other law, one of his other famous laws of universal gravitation says that the force, the gravitational force between two objects is proportional to the product of their masses. Okay, so suppose you had the objects of, say, an Earth, the Earth, which you're familiar with, and an apple. Okay, so the force between the Earth and the apple is a product of the mass of the Earth and that of the apple. So if you have a positive mass, then obviously the force on the apple points downwards, right? If it was a negative mass apple, then because it's a product of a positive negative number, you get the force pointing the opposite direction, which is upwards. Mm. However, remember what we said about the way the negative mass works with forces, it goes in the opposite direction to the force. So a negative mass apple, it's got a force pointing upwards, which means it will accelerate downwards, just like a positive mass apple would. So it will not fly up into space. It will fall down. Oh, what? Yes. That sounds like a bit of a cop-out. Um, no, that is that is thing. But when it does fall down, it will act very strangely because what will happen, it will hit the ground. And when it hits the ground, you know when something hits the ground, then the ground pushes up on them with a the yep, force. Yeah, Well. This will happen here. The apple will get pushed up by the ground, but that will make it accelerate so faster. faster. So it'll keep going Damn. through the earth faster and faster under both gravity and the resistance force and go shooting Whoa. at the other side. This is perhaps no one, one reason. No one drop an app a negatively mass. Well, this is one reason why we may not have seen any negative mass apples because they would just basically go shooting <laughs> off through the earth. What? Is this just a thing?
theoretical idea. This is a theoretical idea. This okay, is people trying right, to explain okay. what would happen if you had this kind of all thing. Right, okay, now, interestingly, right. you'd have a different situation if the Earth itself had negative mass. Okay, so in that case, then you think about the way that you do the modifications to those things. Obviously, this is an exercise for you at home. Then the force will be repulsive. Both a negative mass and a positive mass apple will be repelled by a negative mass Earth. Anyway, you can struggle with that. Look, okay, if, if instead you're a fan of Einstein's general theory of relativity, think of it that a positive mass gravitational field curves space and time towards it, so everything moves towards a heavy object like the Earth. And so both positive and negative mass will curve in the same way, but a negative mass one will curve space and time away from it. And this is one of the reasons why they, you know, the idea, there's an idea of using negative mass or negative, theoretical negative mass or negative energy to do things like keep wormholes open and this kind of stuff so you can build a time machine. Again, slight complication, negative mass doesn't actually exist as far (laughs) as we know. Anyway, so because we haven't found anything, because as I said, they would have gone through the Earth. But this, though, what these scientists have done is a little bit different. So they've made something with an effective mass that's negative. So, okay, so this thing that they've got, it's a something called a Bose-Einstein condensate. This is where you get um, a bunch of atoms. Here they've got a, about 100,000 rubidium-87 atoms, okay? And you had them all like at a very low temperature, so they're all in the same quantum state. And they act as one sort of big amorphous thing that you can control their quantum state. And you can, um, you can do all kinds of weird things with them. You can apply different forces and lasers to them and make, do kind of weird stuff. Like um, uh, you can create quantum vortices, um, superfluidity, uh, slow light. All these really interesting things that I'm not going to talk about now because we don't have time. There's a lot of head shaking going on in the studio here. <laughs> uh, what you can do, you can move them around, and by applying forces appropriately, you can give them different properties. And the properties that they have will depend on the conditions you apply. So in this case, they, you know, this thing is basically acting as one fluid, and with different forces and different potentials in, in different areas that it moves into, it will act like it has a different level of mass. In particular, they managed to create a, an area which would give it negative mass in that particular area. Negative effective mass. It would act like it doesn't actually have negative mass. These are positive mass atoms, but they will move around as if they have negative mass because of the clever way you're applying the forces. It's a mathematical trick, essentially, to make it look like it has negative mass. And what they found when they did this, so like this, this thing is kind of like a fluid and it spreads out under its pressure, right? But when it hits a region where it has negative mass, then because the force or you don't want pushing it outwards now will cause an acceleration back the other direction. Mm. It's kind of repelled from the negative mass area. And oh yeah, this is what they say means that they have shown that it has negative mass, effective mass. Negative effective mass. So yeah. like what, what are the implications here? Oh, very little. Very little, Claire. <laughs> They're trying to understand how... Look, that certain other properties of Bose-Einstein condensates um, uh, can act. There's these things called optical lattices where you have like essentially lasers in a grid pattern um, and there's certain weird properties of those and they say this could be explained by saying, okay, there's negative mass operating in, in bits of it. Um, but really it's just kind of a, it's a bit of a mathematical trick. Um, they've had to really rig things to act like it has negative mass. They haven't created any new matter in the universe. They've just kind of... Yeah, playing around with a boson condensate. But look, it is interesting. It's a neat trick. As I said, it's kind of that definition of magic. It's a neat trick. Um, and it basically shows that in, in these kind of experiments, if you're clever enough, you can find a way pretty much to model just any weird scenario you can think of. But um, yeah, we won't be flying to outer space with negative mass apples anytime soon. That's, that's not going to happen. 
that's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook uh, and if that's not enough lost in science for you, you can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get lost in science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.